there. We're glad you're joining us on Zoom, perhaps, or um, in the parking lot, or here inside this auditorium where we are spread out a little bit, but uh, I'm always glad to see you. So um, I'll talk, maybe mention this more at the end as well. We are doing a Sunday morning sermon series, First Peter. I don't know yet if we might get into some of Second Peter, uh, but this is Peter at the end of his life, Peter who's older and seasoned, Peter who's learned a few things. Uh, and on Wednesday nights, we're kind of doing a study on the life of Peter where we're kind of starting more at the beginning and working through some of these things chronologically. What were his feelings? What were his thoughts? What are some of the mistakes he made, the things that he had to learn to try to get a feel for his character, to get a feel for his heart and what goes into his writing? Uh, so at last week, yeah, I think it's good that we just keep going over these things. Repetitio mater studiorum est. So, uh, yeah, you're like, what is he talking about? Anyway, that's not Sakuma, that's Latin. Repetition is the mother of all learning. So it's good to constantly keep things in front of us to keep building and building on. And we're forgetful creatures, so sometimes we got to take a couple steps back and look over things again. But uh, Ron did a great job kind of matching the songs to the content of what we're looking at of 1 Peter. But do you remember last week kind of what I talked about as a core to Peter's theology, the common strand that goes through the Gospels, through the book of Acts, and then in through Peter's letters? Do you remember what I talked about? That common lens is the cross of Jesus Christ. And the cross is a symbol and represents a remembrance of something that Jesus did on our behalf. But the cross is also a call to us, an obligation and an opportunity. For Peter, it all comes back to the cross and if I were to ask you what are some of the major themes of First Peter, what would you say? Nothing. They got nothing in here, car people. I know you have the right answers, but I can't hear you out there in the parking lot. So two points for the parking lot crew, zero for the auditorium crew. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just being funny. So uh, some of the major themes... Suffering, holiness, salvation. Peter talks a lot about these things. And we kinda, I kind of gave a cliff notes last week to kind of look at some of these main uh, founding things, founding issues. So Peter, he uses a lot of word art. He uses a lot of very rich imagery. He does that to help us kind of live into the story a little bit, step into it. The circumstances of Peter's writing was a growing persecution. He writes in the shadow of a hostile world. I don't think the full-blown persecutions had come yet, but Peter could see the writing on the wall. And so there's almost, I think, a prophetic edge in what he's saying, uh, knowing that Christian, Christian disciples, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, sometimes that's going to put you in the crosshairs. And you're going you're gonna to catch stuff for bearing the name of Jesus. 
So the cross of Jesus is a key to a life that works. It's power to handle the temptations we face. It's power to overcome, overcome the storms of life. You've died, and your life is now hidden with Christ. It's, 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 it's moving our, our purposes, our priorities. And the, for us, it shouldn't be a question anymore. That question was settled when you committed your life to Jesus. And still, we, we try to have it both ways. We're dancing back and forth. Doesn't work as well. When you go all in, there is tremendous power in that. So Peter uses a lot of Old Testament words and imagery that roots us in the larger story of what God is trying to do in, with humanity. This grand project of trying to redeem us and heal us, uh, to rescue us. And the context is, that is assumed in all of this is a community of believers. So I, I liken that to we are, in a lot of ways, the museum as a, as a fellowship, as a community. We are the museum where Peter is hanging the art of his words. And what do we share as a community? Well, those three themes that we looked at from 1 Peter, solidarity and suffering, a common pursuit of holiness, and mutual hope of salvation. So what if instead of hiding our burdens and our brokenness from each other, of pretending like they don't exist and putting on a mask when we come here, Oh, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Everything's fine. It's just kind of dismissive in our culture. We just, and you know, people, you don't know, do they really want to know how I'm really doing? Because you can kind of see they get freaked out sometimes when you begin to let the genie out of the bottle a little bit. We don't always know how people are going to handle that when we let that out. But what if instead of hiding our brokenness and our burdens from each other, what if we allowed others to listen to us? What if we allowed them to encourage us, even sometimes hold us accountable, help us think through things? You know, we can actually be priests to each other. That is what we're invited to do, that we can speak blessing and healing into each other's sufferings, whatever those sufferings are. Sufferings that come from persecutions from wearing the name of Christ. Suffering in relationships, in a marriage. Suffering in the loss of loved ones, parents, a mother, children, whatever the case is. Sufferings that come from the ravages of time, the you know, the, uh, a crisis in health. We can be priests to each other in the burdens and trials that we carry. What if instead of pretending we didn't have those, if we learned to love each other through them? That is, that is my hope. That's my great hope for this Eugene Church of Christ. That's why I'm here as your minister to help us navigate that. Another thing that unites us, this pursuit of holiness. 
There's a special camaraderie or a glue that binds us together. It binds together the people who are chasing hard after Jesus. We're not as close as we should be. One reason is because we hide things from each other. The second reason is some of us are here and we're just dipping our toes in. I need a little positivity. I need a little good things. There's nothing wrong with that. And we, we welcome you here. And we're not, I get it. And every season of life, you're not always going to be on fire for Jesus, killing it for the kingdom of God. But for those who have their eyes fixed on Jesus, who are chasing hard after him, when you pursue holiness like that, you're going to find the other people who take that call seriously too. And you know who you are. The ones who spend time with me. The ones who know me best and are close with me. The intimacy of our friendship. You, you know what I'm talking about our love in the Holy Spirit. That common pursuit of holiness, it's a glue that binds us together. It builds community. Uh, hope of salvation. As we're going to see that salvation is something that is, uh, so that we, it's something we look forward to, but it's not just something we look forward to. Our hope is a real power that can affect and change our situations right now, all the messes that we're in. So a theme first that I gave is Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. That's kind of where I'm building from. So 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 verse 1 and 2 are an introduction that we looked at last week. But today we're going to look through uh, the next few verses, verses 3 through 12, which are a doxology. Uh, this is a formal prayer or song of prayer that Peter offers, which, which in the word art that he has, it touches on themes that are going to come up again and be expanded upon in, later on in the letter. It's kind of a, a literary approach that he's using this doxol doxological prayer to introduce the bigger themes of what's coming. It's kind of beautiful, I find. So he starts with these words in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It even sounds kind of artistic and like words of poetry or words of prayer. Even in English, it still sounds that way to us. And also notice the word art image that Peter gives us. And he'll, he'll build on this, and we're familiar with this other places in Scripture. It's a picture of birth, specifically new birth or an additional birth. So birth is, well, not to be too gross or anything, birth is passage out of one context and into another context a kind of door that you have to pass through. Birth implies movement of some kind. So the movement that he's talking about here is uh, movement out of a place outside of Jesus into 
living hope through the resurrection. That's what we are born into. That's the additional birth that we get to receive. So Peter would have heard Jesus talk about these things. I mean, it's unavoidable that he would have known uh, some of this stuff. So it's not wrong to tie Peter's words to uh, Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. A new birth implies new parentage. Two times already, Peter has tied the word God to the word Father. God. Father. God isn't just an indifferent creator. He has an investment and an interest and a desire for intimacy. All of those things are implied with God being our Father and the Father of Jesus. So what is this living hope? Okay, there's hope. Then there's what's a living hope? What's the difference there? Well, first off, a hope that's living, I guess, is not a dead hope. But it's something that is alive, that gives life somehow or has the dynamics of life about it. So a lot of times people think of hope. What is hope? And we just kind of think of it as uh, these warm feelings that I'm supposed to have. For Christians, think about this, who are going through all kinds of trials and suffering. Hope is not just positive feelings. Hope is not an abstract sense of optimism. Oh, I'm, I'm an optimist. I have hope. I have... That's not what Peter's talking about. Rather, the hope he's talking about is a confident expectation of good of a good outcome based on the work of God. That God is going to fix things. That God is going to make things right. That God can carry all of my brokenness, all of my problems, whatever. We have hope that Jesus is going to be able to take our stuff and turn it into something beautiful. To give it meaning. Peter goes on to describe something else that we are born into, uh, a living hope, first of all. The second thing he describes is this, and into an inheritance, another word, art image, inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So think of salvation, their current realities we get to experience, but there's also legitimate hope of the fullness of that that is still coming. And we can hold that eager expectation. So when Jesus uses this word art here of inheritance, just like he uses the word art of birth, again, I think this is something he gets from Jesus. Jesus used words very similar to this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Those are 
Jesus' words that I'm sure were ringing in Peter's thoughts and his mind. So in Peter's language, we are born into a living hope. We are born into a family structure that, that secures our, an inheritance for us, something that we are going to be receiving. And further, we can depend on this inheritance because it's kept someplace beyond perishing, spoiling, and fading. The quality of that inheritance, it can't be changed and written out and taken away, given to someone else. It's the quality of this inheritance that we can depend on. So what our new birth gives us, according to Peter, we are born into living hope. We're given living hope. We're born into an inheritance. We have something tangible that we are going to receive until salvation that comes that's revealed fully. But as we're going to see, this salvation is more than just pie in the sky by and by. We have hope in that salvation, and that hope is a current reality that has power. Peter goes on in verse 6 to say this, In this you greatly rejoice, this hope, this inheritance, this salvation. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. In this world you will have trouble. Those are Jesus' words too in John. But take heart, I've overcome the world. So, verse 6, this is the first of many, probably, paradoxes that we look at, uh, many for sure in Scripture, but even in First Peter. Then the paradox is this, our faith can sometimes put us in the crosshairs of the world. You might receive a certain ridicule. You guys actually believe that? You are ridiculous, man. That, what... What are you offering people? What are you offering as a way to fix? We all know that things are broken. What are you Christians bringing to the table? It's time to let go of those fairy tales, man. I don't, I don't know the way it is presented to us or it comes to us. Sometimes, if you are all on board for Jesus, you're going to catch some stuff because of that. So in one way or another, faith can make you a target, that's true. But at the same time, it's that very faith that is the instrument of our salvation. It's that very faith that Jesus sees that identifies us as belonging to God. So these trials, in reference to these trials, in verse 7, Peter says this, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So this is an amazing verse to me. I, I am blown away by this verse because it gives us a glimpse into what God is trying to accomplish 
when he allows us to go through suffering? What is he, what is he doing in that? I'm not saying that he causes all of this suffering, but he does allow us to go through it. That God uses that. And so we have another word art image here. Refining, like gold is refined. So Peter likens our trials to like this refining fire. The w- gold in antiquity was the most valuable substance that they knew about in the ancient world. Gold was heated and it was refined and multiple times to get to greater and greater levels of purity to remove the impurities. And so when you, when you refine gold and you go through all of these different steps, finishing to remove all of the impurities or all the dross, you're left with something pure. And that purity of that has great value. Despite the refining of gold, gold remains vulnerable to perishing, doesn't it? Can you drop it in the ocean? Good luck getting it back. Gold remains vulnerable, uh, and that's why it has less value, value than faith. Because um, gold can be lost, it can be taken, it can be pulverized, it can be stolen, it can be scattered. A faith that has faced the refining fires of trials is a faith that becomes important to us. It's a faith that becomes valuable to us. So much so that Peter can say, yeah, it's more precious, more precious than gold. You see, a faith that is hard fought for is a faith of tremendous worth. We don't give it a, we don't give it away, we don't set it aside, we don't, and Peter's affirming us in that. You can depend on this faith, a faith like this. So, strength to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, to use Peter's language. What gives us the strength to do that? Not just getting by, but even to thrive in the midst of suffering. We are given a living, living hope that results in salvation. That hope that's not ambiguous, but our trust in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on our behalf, that what he did on our behalf, that God is going to be able to take that and use it to save our souls. We can have hope in that. That hope is a current reality that's living and affects my circumstances around me. And then based on verse 6, we have strength because we know that the suffering is going to be temporary. You can only suffer so much. And we might not choose it and we might not like it, but it's not going to go on forever. Even if it costs you your life. And then finally, there's great strength for us because, according to verse 7, we know that our suffering is not pointless. But rather, our suffering has a divine purpose. There's something that's being refined. There's something that's being purified in us. And consequently, 
You know, I'm thinking, how does God work this? He gives us free will. Um, We get to make all of these choices, terrible choices we get to make sometimes. But somehow through the trials we face, we get a treasure that could not be gained any other way. The stuff you have to go through, God uses that to give you a treasure that you couldn't get through just pleasure and no hardship ever and no skin in the game and no self-sacrifice. No, this is faith that's hard fought for. And just the struggle of it speaks to its value that we're not willing to give it up or give it away. All right, so those are some living strengths and and means that God uses to to help us. Verse 8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Think about this. Peter got to see Jesus. Peter witnessed Jesus do all of these amazing things. He knew him personally. He knew what Jesus looked like in the mornings with bedhead or whatever. Peter had first-hand knowledge of just how good Jesus was, how wise Jesus was, how humble, how loving, how beautiful. Jesus got to see all of that and know that firsthand. But these people Peter is writing to, who Peter spends time among as an older man, he knows that they have never actually seen Jesus in the flesh. So they're a lot more like us than they, than they were like Peter, Peter getting to see all those things firsthand. They never got to witness firsthand all of these amazing miracles that Jesus did. And yet Peter sees the quality of their love How do you love someone you've never seen? But those of us who have that love, we know it's real. And this must have blown Peter away when he saw the sincerity of these people's love. They never even had what I had with Jesus. But look at this. What the Holy Spirit has birthed in them, it's real. How do you know it's real? Love produces fruit. Love produces fruit. The glorious joy, a faith that's dynamic and growing. I wonder if Peter, when he was writing these words, if he didn't think about Thomas and Thomas's refusal to believe in the resurrected Christ. I'm not going to believe until I put my finger certain places, when I see it with my own eyes. Otherwise, stop bothering me with this. And what did Jesus say to Thomas? Do you remember what Jesus said to Thomas? Because you have seen me, 
you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's Peter's audience here, who have a real and sincere love that finds joy even amidst suffering. So I think one of the primary marks of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives is this quality of love for someone we've never seen physically like we see each other. In His humility, the Holy Spirit quietly works to draw our hearts to Jesus. I talked about unity being something that the Holy Spirit does. But you know, you know, we never talked about the Holy Spirit a whole lot. I mean, it was, he was there. He's in the Bible. You can't avoid him forever. But, you know, I don't think it ever grieved the Holy Spirit that we never built a big theology around him or spent time talking about him or discussing him because the Holy Spirit is humble. And the, the joy of the Spirit that he lives and longs for and breathes into life are people who begin to love Jesus and look at Jesus and think, wow, I want that. I love that. I love him. The Holy Spirit delights in hearts and lives that turn toward and chase after Jesus Christ. See, we're not just left with a series of stories from supposed witnesses some ancient letters written by a people we never knew to people in circumstances that were completely foreign to us. We have something more real than that. We have a love for Jesus that is sincere. It's dynamic. It's alive. It's a power that changes our lives. It changes our realities. We know the love is real for Jesus because it produces faith. It produces joy, according to this verse, a hope that is dynamic, that is, is so alive. It's a living hope. It's growing. And this isn't just pie in the sky by and by. This is something very real for a lot of us in this room right now. And the invitation is for all of us in this room, this parking lot, Zoom call, wherever you are, of a real love, a love that will change your life. Look at this current reality. He doesn't say, you will be filled. You will receive the goal of your faith. You are filled. You are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy, strength, power, even now, even in the midst of all of your messes, all of your garbage, all of your brokenness, all your games, the trials and the consequences of those because of bad choices and lack of wisdom of trying to shut people out, and also trials that come because you wear the name of Jesus. 
you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls, are filled more than just a future possibility, but a current reality. And the real kicker of what Peter is saying is that this joy is current and alive, and it's growing alongside and even because of the things that we suffer, the grief that we have in all kinds of trials. Concerning this salvation, verse 10, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The prophets wrote words that were beyond themselves by the Spirit to serve a people that they didn't know. And I think this people includes us. And the Holy Spirit at work through preachers and teachers bringing the gospel, it produces something that's real and dynamic and alive and can change our realities. Then Peter says this interesting little verse. Even angels long to look into these things. Think about this for a minute. Even angels long to look into these things. How well do you think angels know God? For instance, in comparison to Calvin. All right, so Calvin and my ideas and knowledge of God, Gabriel or Michael or whatever, any angel. Who, who knows more? Who's, a, who's got to see things firsthand? If there is a proximity thing, who is? Uh, and it says, even these angels, they're scratching their heads over the mystery of what God is doing in Jesus. Gabriel, he's looking over at Michael and saying, What is up with this guy? Have you seen this Calvin guy? And Michael being like, no idea, man. No idea what he's doing there. A God who would choose us. A God who would be betrayed by me. A God who I run from. A God who I ignore sometimes. Large amounts of time. God who would take suffering upon himself to redeem the creatures he's made. A God who counts the hairs on your head. A God who has your name written on his palm. A God who keeps the tears you cry in a jar. There's a mystery to all of this. 
And I tell you, it's, angels aren't the only ones scratching their heads over this. But the point I want to leave you with today is the paradox that Peter's describing between suffering and joy. Suffering and joy. The paradox that in Jesus Christ, you can be in the midst of trials, miserable persecution of some kind, whatever those trials are, and still experience a growing faith that produces inexpressible joy. How do you mix sorrow and joy together? Have you ever noticed how many paradoxes there are in our faith, the Christian faith? Like, whoever wants to find their life must lose it. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be last. Whoever exalts themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be lifted up. Uh, the pages of our Bible are filled with these kind of paradoxes, and we live and experience them in very real-life circumstances. I always like this quote from A.W. Tozer. A real, question, a real Christian is an odd number anyway. We just got to own the oddness of this faith that we treasure. He feels supreme love for one whom he has never seen. He talks familiar, familiarly every day to someone he cannot see. He expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another, empties himself in order that he might be full, admits he is wrong so he can be declared right, goes down in order to get up. He is strongest when he is weakest, richest when he is poorest, and happiest when he feels worst. He dies so he can live forsakes in order to have and gives away in order to keep. Our faith is filled with these kind of tensions. John Calvin wrote a commentary on 1 Peter many hundreds of years ago or several hundreds of years ago, and he was wrestling with this paradox of Christian joy amidst the suffering that we go through? How is it that we suffer and have joy at the same time? And so he put in a commentary, his commentary on First Peter, he said this, it seems somewhat inconsistent when Peter says that the faithful who exult with joy are at the same time sorrowful. For these are contrary feelings. But the faithful know by experience that these things can exist together much better than we, than we can express in words. However, to explain the matter in a few words, it may be put thus. The faithful are not logs of wood, nor have they so divested themselves of human feelings as to be unaffected by sorrow, unafraid of danger, unhurt by poverty, and untouched by hard and unbearable persecutions. Hence, they experience sorrow because of evils, but it is mitigated by faith. They never cease at the same time to rejoice. Thus sorrow 
does not prevent their joy, but rather gives place to it. I don't like everything John Calvin said, but he understood this passage. And you think about just this capacity, this human capacity that God gives us to be able to experience a tension or a paradox that our lives, we carry both joy and suffering simultaneously. So there's different ways that we try to do this. But for ancient Israel, one of the ways that they do this, where we can see it most clearly illustrated, was when they put it into poetry. They put it into poetry and they put it into psalm, songs. So like, for instance, look at these few verses from Psalm 116. For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore, I said, I am greatly afflicted. And in my dismay, I said, all men are liars. How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Have you ever been able to cry out to God, I am greatly afflicted? Have you ever been so disgusted with humanity around you that you just felt like they're all liars? You can't trust any of them. And yet, this great affirming hope, these words of joy coming. These things are like side by side throughout the Psalms. We all have brokenness in our lives. We all have trials, self-inflicted or otherwise. It's true, many of our trials and sufferings because of our own mistakes, our own foolishness, our own bad choices, the difference for us is that when we have a sincere love for Jesus, when that love is real, those joys are there alongside with the suffering. And so there's real power here. This is my last point I just want to leave you guys with. There's real power in the love that we have for Jesus. And it gives us the strength to stare our demons down. Whatever those demons are, whatever those sources of our suffering is. We have power because of a living hope in the salvation to come. We have power because we know our suffering is temporary. We have power because we know our God uses our trials and our suffering for a purpose to refine our faith that becomes more precious than gold. So one of the best examples of hope, even joy amidst suffering, uh, expressed in a musical genre is the genre known as Negro spirituals. And so this is a form of, of suffering and joy and lament and all of this carried in song together. 
Slaves brought from Africa to what would become the United States were thrust into an environment heavily influenced by Christianity. Consequently, slaves would come to interpret their plight through the lens of the biblical narratives. This is analogous to how Peter incorporates his Gentile readers into Israel's story with God. We are part of a bigger story. Here's the writer of the commentary that I really am enjoying. These songs grew out of the dynamic tension of living with faith in God who promises deliverance while simultaneously experiencing the slave master's whip. So just one example of one of those songs. I want Jesus to walk with me. In my sorrows, Lord, walk with me. When my life becomes a burden, I want Jesus to walk with me. That can hold music, that can speak to this reality of suffering and joy held together. That's what Peter's talking about in the very real love that we carry for Jesus Christ. So invitations. Ron, you can come on up. First is uh, consider joining us Wednesday night. We're trying to do this companion study. I think my prayer is that these two together are going to enrich things. And then... uh, The second invitation that I have is, you know, we can find ways to live this together as community better. Let our love be sincere. We don't have to be ashamed of and try to hide the brokenness and the pain that we carry. We have to transition as a church to become a safe place to carry all of those things together. We always offer an invitation here to put on the Lord in baptism. to receive the prayers of this church, to just share with your church family. You can come forward as we stand and sing to let us know some way that we can help you. Or approach me or find me afterwards or talk to one of our elders. We want to be a church that's here for each other. I think we have more lessons to learn in Peter, but thanks for joining us here today, and may you be blessed.